Unexpected Elements is all about finding the surprising science angles to everyday news. Mind absolutely blown. Amazing to me. That's Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. Imagine a world in which your laptop or mobile device accesses the internet not via radio waves, Wi-Fi, as it does today, but using light instead, Li-Fi. Ordinary LEDs beaming data down from the ceiling. That world may not be as far away as you might think. In fact, the technology is already here, and it's thanks to the engineering ingenuity of my guest today. Harold Haas has spent two decades researching optical wireless communications. In 2011, he made waves in the scientific community and beyond when he showed how a simple desk lamp could be used to stream a video. Harold is a distinguished professor of mobile communications at the University of Strathclyde, where he's also director of the Li-Fi Research and Development Centre. Remarkably, he's published over 600 academic papers and has 45 patents and counting. He's also regularly named among the most highly cited research engineers in the world. But his early life wasn't plain sailing. It was dogged by a very real fear that he may have the same devastating disease that killed his mother at the age of just 42, an experience that shaped his early years and which has driven him to succeed and make his own life really count. Professor Harold Haas, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me here. Now then, Harold, when you eventually retire from academia, I believe you have a plan for a second career that might surprise listeners. Yes, I was always intrigued by medicine. The first reason is I really want to use the skills I've learned in engineering of problem solving and to apply that in order to help people and advance the field in some respect. And the other reason is a more personal one, um, as you said, my, my, my mother suffered from this terrible disease, Korea Huntington, which is a genetic disease. And there's no cure for it at the moment. It's a devastating sort of event that, that people have. And, and I've been motivated, driven to provide some answers to help solving that problem if I can. But also it would involve studying medicine, I guess. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it would uh, study medicine for fun and that's uh, without pressures and, and learning new things is, is, very, uh, is, is what I, I do enjoy. You already seem to like to use medical analogies in, in, in your research. For example, the idea that wireless connectivity and networks is a bit like the human body's central nervous system. Really, what we try to do is build that nervous system. And the comparison really is the spinal cord is the, the fiber networks that run through our villages, our cities and continents, essentially. But then we have the wireless networks, so the 5G, the 4G, the cell towers, which provide some connectivity in the sort of in the peripheral nervous system. And you could see them as the sciatic nerve that goes through your leg. It's sort of wireless 5G, 4G. But we don't have this fine-grained nervous system that connects every sensor in your in your fingertip. And we need more connectivity at the, at the edges, if you want. Mm. And this is really where Li-Fi is, um, I, mean, I believe, a wonderful solution to really achieving that. Mm. Well... Therefore, there's still work to be done, so we won't retire you yet from, from, <laughs> from your current job. Regarding your academic credentials, Harold Haas, yeah. I, I mean, your research spans many areas of science, physics, maths, engineering and so on. What kind of scientist do you see yourself as? That's a very good question because we also see the division into an engineer and a scientist. So mm. I would call myself a creative scientist because science is sort of exploring how the, the world works. 
engineering is taking the learnings from science and applying it to create something that would help humanity. Yeah. If you take a pure mathematician, put a circle around, and you take a, a pure physicist, take a circle around, and take an artist, the intersection of the three circles is what I would define as an engineer. You've spent 20 years now reinventing how we can connect online using visible light to transmit data. Of course, the internet has now become so central to all our lives these days that being online at times feels as, as fundamental and basic as eating or, or, or sleeping. And it's getting ever more difficult to disconnect and switch off. Do you think that's a problem for society? I mean, with every technology, there's two sides. There's a, a side that really helps uh, helps us and helps society, but there's also a side that you can use technology to the detriment of society. And I see it with my own children. You've it's, got four. We have four, got four kids. Yes, and it's a it's a constant <laughs> yes. battle about downtime. Oh, it's mm. constant. Well, Harold Haas, you were born in 1968 in a small town near Nuremberg in Germany. What was your childhood like? I grew up in a very, very sort of um, traditional, classic, northern Bavarian, Franconian village. It's tradition, really tradition, that governs the way people live their lives. And um, you find the best recipes of, of a cake, uh, if you want. That's, that's okay. optimised over many, that, many decades. That's but. worth knowing. And at the age of 10, you learnt something devastating about your mother. That's correct. So tell me about, about her, her disease. It's a disease called Korea Huntington. And it's a bit of like Alzheimer's. So the, they say the protein is generated basically that kills the brain. So memory loss goes with it. And not, not only that, it affects the nervous system as well. So nerves and, and muscles sporadically act. So you see this sort of arms moving randomly. So it's one gene. You either have it or you don't have it. So it's a rolling a die with a 50% chance. So I knew at that time I could either start decaying at the age of 30 in terms of my brain decaying and my actions decaying, or I could live a life. And what was your relationship like with your mother? I mean, she she will have known that she had this terminal disease. Yes. I mean, it's uh, she didn't really talk about and there's, there's sort of other family events like divorce coming in as well and my father couldn't cope with it and I mean that's I basically quietly disengaged and and retreated and I mean, so you were living with this knowledge that you two might have this disease what was it like going through your teenage years and early 20s with this worry constantly there at the back of your mind um, it, it was frightening uh, to a large extent, and that uncertainty really shaped the way I thought, the, the, the way I approached life, the way I conducted myself, and, uh, and in a way that I always looked to see if there are any symptoms that would resemble a similar fate than my mother was uh, due to have. Well, knowing that maybe your life would also be cut short, that you wanted to make the most of the now... I tried to, but in, in fact, I did the opposite because I, I, I worked hard on myself in order to prove that I, I'm still functioning well and functioning well, meaning that I'm functioning better than anyone else. And I believe you described yourself as having been a bit of an electronics freak, a nerd even. A nerd, yes. 
Yeah, it it started. I mean, and I don't know, age of um, ten, eleven, I got sort of this electronics kit from my from my dad. He's a technician at Siemens, and I got uh, the first time I got LEDs into my hands, a green one and a blue one, vividly remember. And I got my first transistor. That was in early days. In early, early days, days, and yeah. I, I built sort of the first sort of uh, flashing light. And uh, I remember I, I got it at Christmas, and over over the. Uh, sort of a, the Boxing Day, I wanted to fully understand how a transistor works. I, I read the book maybe four or five times, but really didn't understand how physics worked at that, at that age. You know? And you couldn't have known how big a role LEDs, light-emitting diodes, would play in your, in your career. You mentioned your father was a technician working in, in, in Siemens, but presumably this interest of yours in electronics came some extent from him? He has a very in- inventive mind as well. So he built little gadgets at home and, and built uh, sort of um, little inventions that, that basically went through our home. And and, uh, and that creativity is something that I explored as well as a young kid. Well, you took a rather unusual route after you left school, certainly for us here in the UK, because after achieving top grades, you embarked on a three-year apprenticeship. I did. Um, this is at Siemens, where, where your father worked. And even though you then decided to go on to, do, to, to, to university, that apprenticeship had a huge effect on you, didn't it? It really taught me how boring some jobs can be. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I learned that I really hated repetitive work. You, you didn't want to follow the path that your father had taken working for Siemens for 14 no, years? No, I, I didn't. And I mean, remember, it's still the time when I really didn't know, is my life really worth it after after being 30. So I, I, I found it boring. I, 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 I learned a lot. I learned a lot about discipline and about how you conduct your work. But I also wanted to become an inventor. I wanted to really do something creative and build things. And I, I knew that's only possible if you further your, your studies and you go into university and, and learn more deeply what technology and electronics means and how it works. Well, in 1990, you did go to university you went to study electrical engineering what else after all yeah. this is this was your 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 passion uh, university close to your home in nuremberg that's correct what was your time like there it was a very stimulating time and i mean working with peers and solving problems and, and thriving and learning and being challenged and and that is was a completely different different world really getting getting out in the challenges and that's what i realized i really I thrive in getting a challenge and solving the problem. Your mother, by this stage, presumably would have would have been deteriorating quite. quite she badly. wasn't at home anymore, and she was in a in a care home because yeah, she couldn't walk and she couldn't yeah, she's completely changed. How tough was that for you? Presumably, you went and oh, visited it's, her. It's awful. Uh, it's awful to see that and and how how someone you were close so close to is not recognisable. Well, sadly, she she uh, passed away in 1993 That's when correct. she was only 42. That's correct. After graduating, it wasn't until 1995, I believe, that you had your first trip abroad, outside of Germany, yeah, a scholarship, in fact, working in Mumbai. That's correct. But I gather when you arrived, you didn't even have anywhere to stay. They they gave you funding and said, okay, um, we booked a hotel for you for three days. Go there and then off you go. See where you live. <laughs> see see where you stay and organize yourself. And in, in that um, assignment, I worked for again Siemens. We created the first cellular network. Did you settle in? Did you enjoy your time there after the initial culture shock? It, it was one of the the most shaping events in my life. In, not in terms of technical work, but more in terms of opening up the view and realizing that 
life could be more than just the parameters that you are given by living in a, in a little village in, in Bavaria or even in a bigger town in Nuremberg. And I realized how rich life is. And that's where I also decided, first of all, I couldn't really properly speak English. I still can't really speak it. Uh, but, but, but I wanted to further my career after this sort of one year in an English-speaking country. And I, I, I want to live in an international world. Mm, that's mm. where I decided to conduct a PhD at, at Edinburgh. And throughout this period, you still had this very real health threat hanging over you. At that time, there was a method to identify whether you have that detrimental gene for that degenerative sort of disease or not. Because, you know, yeah. list, listeners may be aware that, that there is this test for Huntington's yes. disease. Um, and, you know, if you are concerned, if you have it in, in running in your family, you can choose. I and mean, people can choose to find out whether they have it or not. And many people at risk from Huntington's disease decide they'd rather not know until symptoms appear. Yes, and that was a very tough decision. Knowing the test existed, you can find out whether you are on a positive or a negative side. And it uh, took me some time, but eventually I, I decided I want to know what's going to happen with me. So, And, and I decided to take the test in 96. And it was negative. Uh, with big relief, it, it was negative. And that's actually where my life then really switched on because then the sky was the limit. I gather you went, you went back to Germany for a little while, working for Siemens in, in, in Munich. Then you came over to Edinburgh for your, for, for your PhD. What was that on? That was on uh, mobile communication networks. And I, I developed technologies for the third generation, which basically first supported mobile internet. Before that, it was mobile telephony. So you had a mobile phone and you could talk to your friends and family. But this is the transition into mobile internet. Well, rather impressively during your PhD, you not only published your very first research paper, which isn't so uncommon for, for PhD students, but you filed your first patent with your supervisor, Gordon Povey. That's correct. That was really uh, exciting that uh, we had that idea and it, that we filed the patent on a, on a new way of operating future mobile networks. And uh, we were then very happy that uh, it later on was uh, bought by Siemens in Munich. He's very happy. You, I gather you celebrated by going off on a road trip. I did. Uh, the first paper that I published was uh, at, at a mobile communications conference in Boston. And I, I bought a book on the footsteps of Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, right. because he walked around Cape Cod. And I took the book, read every chapter and followed his footsteps in a little <laughs> trip around, around Cape Cod. Yes. <laughs> After two years back in Munich, you then became the first electrical engineering professor at a new international English-speaking university in Bremen, Jacobs University. And it was there that you produced your most cited and influential research paper. That is true. And that was a very uh, sort of inspiring experience. And uh, I worked with a machine learning expert uh, in, in Germany. And that remember, that's the time before people started talking about AI and machine learning and, and developed uh, new neural networks so new ways of learning how machines work. And, and these neural networks were particularly useful for mobile phones because they didn't require a lot of processing power and that was the trick involved. And we applied a neural network to train a mobile phone to reduce the transmit power and save energy 
you get a better signal and, and less energy wastage. So this was about having more efficient radio transmission ante- from the antenna. Indeed, to make sort of the, uh, the the mobile phone operate at higher performance while at the same time you're able to reduce the power consumed by the phone. I know at that uh, time you invented this uh, something called spatial modulation. That is that is correct. Is that a separate thing? That, from that's what? a separate right. thing. Okay. That, that is that is a method to transmit uh, more data using multiple antennas. Presumably that, that work and this highly cited paper really established you then, you know, in that field in the world. It basically created a new, a new field, if you want, and, and still mm-hmm. very proud uh, of that development. Well, so your, your career is thriving in, in Germany, but in 2007 you're drawn back to Edinburgh because you, you and your wife, Sibylla, who you, you'd met during your PhD, felt it would offer a more varied life for you and, and, and your family, for your children. I was an associate professor at Jacobs University and I accepted a lectureship. Okay, so it, associate yes. professor we think of as, a, as like a senior lecturer in the UK. That, that is correct. It's similar yeah. to a senior lecturer and I basically accepted uh, a lectureship for the sake of uh, being right. in an environment that we as a family really liked. And in fact, the next five years, you know, really turned out to be some of the most successful of your academic life. Yeah, indeed. I, I brought over to Edinburgh this idea of using LEDs for data communication. And I uh, still remember my, my sort of lecture that I gave when I applied for the job. And I said, I want to make more out of this technology and commercialize it. We're going to come to using LEDs and life in a moment. But um, I just wanted to ask you, how have you been able to have a research career that's so flourishing when you have a family, four children? Has it been difficult to balance the two? Society is not really geared in order to allow two people with four children to follow their careers. And we always felt we should have, we should balance this, but to be a part-time academic, it's simply not possible. And that's that's a sad truth that that we that we had had to learn, and that's the sacrifices that, in this case, uh, my wife uh, made. Mm. Well, your research has been successful, so I think we should move on to the biggest breakthrough of your academic career. One I, I, I mentioned in the introduction, LiFi. Very simply, what is it, and how does it work? LiFi uses the light spectrum. It uses your ordinary LED light to transmit data at very high speeds. And the way it's done is we change the intensity of that light in a very fast manner so that your eye would not recognize any flicker or any change in the intensity, but data is encoded nonetheless. And a photo detector will then extract data from that flickering light that you don't see. If I recall, that the father of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, also invented what he called a, a photophone in 1880 and managed to send voice messages using light. So, so the concept of Li-Fi isn't completely a new idea, is it? Absolutely not. So he transmitted voice powered by sun over 200 metres using light. He did it before he invented the, the telephone, mm. as, you, as you said, and... Uh, Somewhere I read he also wanted to call his second daughter photophone, <laughs> the device <he laughs> against the will, but uh, it was overruled, the will of his wife. overruled by, by his wife, yes. <laughs> 
and, and so you had the idea that light could be used to transmit data yeah. wirelessly. How did you go about testing that this idea actually worked? I mean, the idea of using light to transmit data was around before. We developed methods, algorithms that would allow us to transmit really high data rates with these um, LED devices and, and lighting devices and also build complete networks so that you can operate your mobile phone when you don't point it to the light source. In all ways, you operate your phone or, or device, you can still be connected. And that's what we call Li-Fi, allowing this mobility, um, uh, allowing multiple users to be connected to the light source and so on. Well, in, in 2011, Harold Haas, you announced Li-Fi to the world via a TED Talk, which, as many listeners may know, is a pretty big deal to be invited to give a TED Talk. But you almost didn't agree to do this talk. Yes, uh, because at that time, I didn't know what TED conferences were. And we were about to, to go on, a, on an Easter break. And right. I quickly checked my emails as an invitation, TED, and I uh, was about to put it into the into the bin. <laughs> but then I uh, looked again and I was astonished uh, what I would have had missed. The number of people who, who watch TED Talks is in the millions, isn't it? It is absolutely <laughs> in the millions. And it's, it's one of these wonderful ways you can disseminate your work to a really wide audience. Yeah. And not surprisingly, um, there were technical hiccups at the start. There were, I mean, we rehearsed it many, many times. I had 20 minutes to set it up and I had a postdoc at that time that was the, the main driver behind that development. Um, uh, he was setting it up and I saw him sweating. <laughs> Sweat <laughs> increased. And, I, and then you, it's this big auditorium and you, big doors and, and all these people started coming into the auditorium. I had to, to start my session and, and um, I was standing on there now and he just left and said it may not work today what was the problem then that the problem was we found out later that uh, after my presentation there was an artist uh, playing the air piano i don't know whether you know what an air piano is it's, mm. it doesn't have the traditional keys no, it has no. a, a bank of lasers yeah and the lasers interfered with the optical system in our li-fi system <laughs> which which reduced the quality of the signal and but luckily, uh, it worked. L- luckily, it did work. Yes. Uh, uh, and you showed how an ordinary office lamp fitted with a cheap LED light bulb and some signal processing technology could stream a video. I think it's a, a video of flowers blooming, stream it onto a laptop. Yeah. And it got a rapturous response from the live audience, I believe. Yeah, it was, it was real uplifting. They could probably tell uh, uh, how nervous you were that it wouldn't work. <laughs> I mean, you, you, if you watch the video, you see that moment when I switch on, it's, uh, it was maybe an overproportional joy that came out of, of my voice <laughs> because it's not only that I went to that point, but it also, uh, it also worked, yes. And that TED Talk was picked up all over the world by the likes of the New York Times, for example. It was even named as one of the best inventions of the year by Time magazine. How did it feel getting the sort of public recognition that followed the TED Talk? I learned as I went along these invitations and made mistakes, as, as you always do when you start something new. But it's it, it's been a very valuable experience. Did your family help to keep your feet on the ground? They did. Uh, they did by always calibrating and... and um, putting their own perspectives from Li-Fi in terms of it's just Li-Fi and it's just the way you, you transmit data. So, that, yeah, that, that really helped. They, they made it sound 
boring and not so boring and, and <laughs> not so and profound. Put a dampening sort of excitement on it and say <laughs> we want rather more time with you than than hearing about Wi-Fi. Yeah, of course. You know, as well as Wi-Fi today, we have mobile networks, we have broadband, internet, all work very well. You know, listeners might think, why do we need yet another way to connect online? The visible light spectrum is free. It's unlicensed. And it's about 3,000 times wider than the entire radio spectrum. Uh, you, you refer to the, the radio spectrum crunch. That is correct. Can you explain what you mean by that? So the, the, the radio frequency spectrum is, is the resource where all these radio systems, 5G, Wi-Fi and so on, mm. work. And, and that, that is a, a resource that is limited and it's, it's not possible to indefinitely expand so that's why it is absolutely natural and inevitable to look beyond the radio spectrum. If you go into a hotel in the summer in a, in a warm place, the swimming pool is often crowded with people and you can't really swim the way you want. But visible light allows us to swim in the oceans. And that is what, what LIFA would enable. And it is enabling it with devices you have all around you. Well, in 2012, you and one of your former postdoctoral students from Bremen, Mustafa Afghani, along with your old PhD supervisor, Gordon Povey, you started a spin-off company called Pure Li-Fi. So in the real world, how will Li-Fi be used? It can be used in your homes as your sort of Li-Fi router. It can be used underwater, uh, connecting underwater remote-operated vehicles. It can be used for space communication between satellites. It can be used in street lights in order to provide sort of a network connectivity in, 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 in cities, every light source we want to turn into this high-speed router for high-speed data communication. And, and that's, that's the mission we have started and, and uh, we are on right now. So basically, it, anywhere that you can light up with light, you can be use, uh, using it to transmit data. Exactly. Anywhere you have a light, you see a light, you, you can have high-speed data connectivity. I mean, it all sounds very wonderful and, and uh, you sound very optimistic. What are the main challenges then with Li-Fi? So the main challenge we see at the moment is is really getting that technology into a smartphone. There are already people using that technology now, but we want it to be available to everybody. And we are now at the stage where we have the technology, we have this little module, we call it light antenna module, that is not bigger than a camera module that you see in your smartphone has to be integrated in that. And I would reckon that would be happening in the next two years. Looking back over your career, Harold, mm. and how much your, your engineering innovations have changed and will change our world, you must feel not only personal pride and satisfaction, but that you'll be leaving a legacy your mother would have been proud of had she lived long enough to see it. I, I know from, from what others said, she was always uh, very good uh, in school. She didn't have the opportunity to go to university. And then she had this detrimental fate in terms of yeah, losing all her capabilities at a very young age. So she was deprived. She was sort of cut short in her life. And, and um, I hope uh, with, with what I have done, if she's looking at me from wherever she is, uh, that she feels proud of at least her son, having done something that she feels was worth it. Harold Haas, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you. 
Unexpected Elements is the podcast exploring the science behind the headlines. That's an interesting concept. It's just bubbling with excitement. Each week, we take a news story you've probably heard of and use the science surrounding it as a springboard to dive into other stories that may not be on your radar. We're here in my bee lab. In front of a box of bees. <laughs> no bad side effects at all. Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.